How are you guys doing? Anybody, everybody have a good Christmas? Who got the best Christmas present? Dude, like three of you said me. You did? I got a fish. A fish? That sounds pretty good, man. What? I got a dollhouse and a car. Dude, a car? I couldn't beat a car. Well, here's what I got. You guys see this? That's amazing. I like that. Do you know what this is? It's a bowl. Do you see anything special about it? It's a bowl that's been broken. You see, you see where the cracks were in it? And I got something else for Christmas. What else did you get? A toy car with the controller. Whoa, and you can drive it yourself? That's amazing. Well, this bowl is what's called, it's, it's an art form. It's called kintsugi. Can you say kintsugi? Kintsugi. Kintsugi. So what it is, is when something breaks, it gets etched back together in gold, and it's pieced back together to make it whole again. And I really like this because it's a little on the nose, but it's symbolic, I think, of what God does to us. You guys know that we're pretty good at breaking our own lives? We make bad decisions. Yeah. He fixes them and makes them even better. One of the cool things about Kintsugi is every single one is unique, because no bowl breaks the exact same way. We all find unique ways to be broken. But God is always able to piece us back together and then to etch it in and make us more beautiful than even what this would have been if it was just a regular bowl. So I had this in my office now to remind me of what God does and how he loves us. And I just wanted to share that with you guys today, okay? All right, you guys are free to go back to your seats. If you want to. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 12. Uh, maybe an apology, I don't know, I'm not really that sorry, but no pithy, lighthearted story today to start out, uh, you know, usually I try to do that, but today's going to be a little bit different uh, as we launch into to the new year. Uh, what I want to do over the next 30 minutes or so is, is attempt to take a look around us, both kind of culturally and then globally. And make an attempt to, to look at some concerning observations that I, I think have been noticeable for some years now, uh, but they're starting to cement in a little bit more noticeably. And then with that observation, just to kind of use that as a backdrop for answering this question, where are we going? So I racked my brain for some smooth transition in, but sometimes when the water's a bit cold... Uh, and unpleasant, the best way is just to jump, so we're just jumping. Uh, 2023 marked one of the lowest life expectancy statistics that the U.S. has seen in about 20 years. Here, here's a chart so that you can look at that and see. Uh, the blue is the United States. The little green one that you can kind of make out is the uh, U.K., and then the yellow one is Canada. And, and if you'll notice, right around the 2020 marker, uh, United States life expectancy ratio took, took a plummet. It started going down pretty quickly. This is a concerning metric because this is one of the leading metric anthropologists use to kind of study about well-being and how good, uh, are, how, how good is humanity doing, is, is, are people doing in particular nations. Um, and so this has been an ongoing debate for a while is why has this happened? Uh, the last time it was this low was 2004. Uh, 2004 was 77.49 years, and you can see it's 77.28. Uh, 
And there's a lot of uh, answers to why this is happening, and, and depending on what you read and what your source is, uh, there's going to be some varied answers. Uh, more left-leaning news sources will suggest that this is because COVID uh, and maybe the hospital or the healthcare system in America. Uh, and to be fair, I do think there's something that COVID added to this, but I think it goes far beyond just the illness in itself. Because other readings and other sources will look at this and say, yeah, that's a factor, but also what we've seen, especially since 2020, in the last three years, is a noticeable uptick in things like drug overdose and suicide and heart conditions and things like that. And as we begin to look at, at those things, these heartbreaking catastrophes, what, what is it that causes that? Because those things in themselves, they're, they're heartbreaking, they're problems, they're, they're really sad realities that we live in and around, but they're also symptoms of a much deeper problem but I think it is under the surface of our society. What causes the wounds that leads to drug addiction and even suicide? Because while these things seem like they might be far off, if you were to go and talk to one of the, the people at our local hospital, uh, I had this conversation with Scott Reeves just the other day who was on the hospital board. He said, Philip, you would not believe the amount of young adolescent children being admitted to the Portalis Hospital for thoughts of suicide. It is incredibly higher than it's ever been. What is it that seems to be causing these wounds? And it's a hyper-complex answer, and I am nowhere near intelligent enough to grasp that. Let me just confess that right up front. But I believe that there is a notable suspect, something that's preyed upon American idealism for years, eating away at the very thing that makes us thrive. You see, in our hyper-individualistic culture, because that's what we've concocted here, in our hyper-individualistic culture, the soil is pristine to grow things such as loneliness and isolation, things that hollow out and eat away at the very things that make us human. For the last 50 years or so, there's been a ton of study over what makes humans happy some 1,500 scholarly, peer-reviewed articles. Uh, and what's really interesting is most of these studies keep coming down not to a bunch of different answers, but what, what boils down to about four factors in what makes a human happy. One is a network of friends or a close few friends, people that you can know and be known by, that know your vulnerabilities, they know your strengths, uh, and that you can rely on to talk with and process through trauma and hurts and pains and aches and all of that. Second, and this is a little politically incorrect in our world today, but it still keeps surfacing over and over again, and that's a nuclear family. Having a mom and a dad at home, having brothers and sisters, that that does seem to have some heavy contribution to the well-being of a child that grows into an adult. Third is meaning, or, or what we might just say vocation, meaningful work. And that doesn't necessarily mean you get paid a lot of money. What that means is you feel like when you go into work and then leave, you contributed something good. That you can see what you worked on and you can note, this is how I made a difference. And that seems to play a key factor. And then four is most of them don't use the word religion. I'm going to use the word religion. They would use the word philosophy. Uh, but a religion to make sense of life and death and suffering. Turns out in a world that seems to be incredibly more and more atheistic and more and more uh, evolutionary that, that can't really make sense of 
suffering. So the next closest thing we can get is what's called hedonism, the idea that we just destroy suffering once and for all. If anything's bad, avoid it, get away from it, because the only thing worth experiencing in this world is joy and happiness and elation and all the things that come with that. But that actually doesn't get us there, because despite however hard we try, suffering seems to creep its way back in. So what uh, psychologists have found is it's people that can make sense of that, and most often that comes through religion. It comes through what the Bible says. Now, I understand that I'm a pastor, and I'm very biased for that, but I think when we break those down and then we compare them to the world around us, what we find is that we're living in a time where all four of those things are being hollowed out to make room for new mantras that sound something along the lines of, follow your heart. You just do you. Be who you want to be. In essence, joy, pleasure, meaning it's all derived in your own autonomy. So as soon as you can break the bonds of tradition or religion or social implication, then you'll be finally free. Then you'll find happiness. But here's the reality. You can have autonomy or you can have loving relationships, but it's pretty much impossible to have both. I've learned this a lot as uh, having a son has really taught me this in ways that I had never expected because before Griffin, there was plenty of time at night to watch whatever shows or play whatever games I wanted to play, to do all the things I wanted to do without any worry. And now I have to spend most of my nights uh, helping my wife feed the baby or clean the kitchen while she feeds the baby, then give him a bath and then put him to bed. And he's really cut into my personal time a lot. I'm just saying. Now, I wouldn't change that for anything, of course. But if I were to come at my own son with this mentality of, I am who I want to be, Griffin, and I don't have time for you. I want to do the things that make me happy. The result is going to be neglecting my son and then actually the opposite of my own happiness. Because what this world keeps telling us actually seems to break us more than it does to mend and build us. The tragic paradox of hyper-individualism is that what began in our minds or humanity's minds as ecstatic liberation ends up as a war of tribe against tribe that crushes the individuals it seeks to free. Now, this isn't new. See, he's still just like right into my time here. No, I'm just joking. This isn't new. In 1831, there was a French political philosopher. His name was Alexis de Tocqueville. You might have heard of Tocqueville. Uh, he had toured America, early 1830s, toured America, and when asked what he thought of the American culture and the American world, what he noted is that uh, the defining attribute of America is what he called extreme individualism. And then he said that if that trait would go unchecked, quote, it would mean the abolition of humanity itself. Now, de Tocqueville was French, and so... That sounds like a little bit overdramatic French philosopher to me. But in 1831, he begins to notice this trend. This isn't new. What is new now, however, is this impact that the internet and that what now is kind of getting referred to as digitalism has had on this pre-existing condition, how it's made it worse because a growing number of people find their primary community not with their neighbors of proximity, but with neighbors of ideology found across the internet. So, so we can now go find our primary communities with people we've never met in real life, 
but people that will affirm the things we already believe to be true, meaning that my sense of self-worth, my sense of self, my moral vision, my direction for life, it can all come now from the online world, not real-life relationships. Moreover, if those real-life relationships then challenge or oppose that sense garnered from an online pseudo-community, then most often it's actually the real-life relationship that's to be shed to embrace more online world and community and voices. And that's not unique to one particular side of the political spectrum. It's both symptoms of the doomsday prepper who just bought another generator as he gets ready to live off the grid once and for all, and the 17-year-old that's struggling with gender, gender identity who feels as if she can't have a conversation with her parents, so she turns back to online forums once again. Both lead to isolation, both lead and breed loneliness, and both wreak havoc on the core factors of human thriving and happiness. Both destroy friendships and family and work and for sure religion. So, so why is it then that life expectancy is doing this while suicide and drug overdose keep going up? And the answer that I think I can give to that, with all due respect, is the answer of idolatry. The Bible is very clear that God is a life-giving God, but it's outside of God and our own sinful desires and our own sinful pursuits. When we define our own way as right and wrong, as good and evil, that's when death comes into the world. That may not be instantaneous, but it's one of the going realities. Now, the difference today is we don't name our idols. They're not carved out of wood or stone. They're not called Baal or Zeus. Instead, we fall to our knees in worship of the idol of self and autonomy. And it's killing us, literally. So welcome to First Baptist. I'm glad you're here today. I know you're like, wow, that's so encouraging, Philip. Thank you. But if this is where the world is headed... And I think there's enough evidence to say there's at least a concerning alarm. If this is the reality that's plaguing even little old Portalis, then we have to ask, what are we doing? What are we as First Baptists doing to combat this? Where are we going as a church that is noticeably different than the direction of the world? So welcome to what we're going to be focusing on all year in 2024. Uh, next week, I'll be diving a little bit more into the practicality of all this and kind of our vision and how you can participate in that and how that breakdown's going to go. But for today, I just want to present to you a biblical framework. This is a foundational laying to build upon what we're going to do throughout this year of how we as a church can stand in contrast to our broken society. Because in the teachings of this 2,000-year-old book, we are given, and again, I'm biased, but I believe this is absolutely true, an honest and compelling vision of what a Jesus-following community should look like and how it should stand in stark contrast as an alternate society to the world around us. Namely, that First Baptist Church would become, First Baptist Church must become a community of tight-knit, loving relationships. 
in a world where isolation and loneliness is the predominant problem that we face, that things are breaking down because people are separating apart, that First Baptist would become a place where people knit together. I don't mean that literally, but maybe. If you want to start a knitting group, be my guest. But we come together with loving, tight-knit relationship. And to talk about that, I just want to take you to Romans 12. Romans is one of the most incredible, all the Bible's great, of course, but Romans 1 through 8, it's particularly incredible because it's this really long dissertation of the gospel. It's Paul just laying out what it means that Jesus, the Messiah, has come, that sin has broken us. Jesus then enters into this broken world, exempt from the brokenness because he never contributes to it, but then he lays his life aside on the cross. He dies in our place. He pays the penalty for our sin. He is then vindicated in the grave and resurrected back into true life, giving us the assurance that this life is not the end, but there's one to come that's far better. He then rescues us by forgiving us of our sins, filling us with the Holy Spirit. This is Romans 1 through 8. It's incredible. Romans 9 through 11 then goes into the question, well, what does this mean about the Jewish people? What is God doing? Is he abandoning that and starting something new? And Paul seems to say that you really shouldn't see it that way because it's not that God so much has closed a chapter as God has further opened the book, allowing Gentile and Jew alike to come be rescued, to experience this new covenant of the blood of Jesus spilt for the forgiveness of sins, that God is now creating a new multi-ethnic family that consists of both Jew and Greek, which was totally unprecedented at the time when those two people were at each other's throats, quite literally killing one another. The church becomes a place where they would find unity. So then chapter 12 becomes this kind of hinge chapter as Paul's going to move into the more practical element of what this means. Given that Jesus has done this, given that the new family has been established, what should we do? What does that look like? So I'm just going to go through this whole chapter. Uh, I'm not going to do a bunch of exegesis through it all. I'm just going to stop, talk a little bit, and then go back into it. But the first thing uh, before I get into it is is this. Um, I have this problem when I go back to Tennessee with my wife. And that's my southern family, who I love very dearly, inject their southernness back into me. And so when I get on the plane and get home, I start saying stuff like, there ain't no potatoes left in the house. And Haley's like, what are you talking about? So I, we literally had this conversation yesterday of, you have to stop. You, you have to talk normal because you're going to talk like that in the pulpit and people are going to wonder what happens. So But I am going to intentionally do that because one of the problems we have in our modern Bible is that in English, the word you is both singular and plural. And so the tendency when we read you in the Bible is to imagine it's a singular individualistic you. That is rarely the case, especially in Paul's letters. It is almost always plural. The problem is, in order to pluralize you, we use the word. So we got to read y'all into this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge y'all to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God right it's not just my sacrifice or yours it's ours together and it's not just my doctrine or my viewpoints or my political views it is my body it's every bit of me from the way I view my sexuality to the way I understand and take care of my body it is I lay it all down we lay it down on the altar that God may pick it up. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age. Don't be like the world around us. 
but be transformed by the renewing of y'all's mind so that y'all may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. It's a really interesting thing because at the top, Paul mentions brothers and sisters. It's the Greek word adophoi. It's this imagery of family that it's through the process of community and church that we actually do these things. These are not individual commands, but it's something you and I, we do it together. And what's makes that really interesting is there's a connection point to Mark chapter 4. We actually talked about this back in November. That Jesus looks around and he says, who's my mother and my brother? No, these are my mother and my brothers. These are my family because my family is whoever does the will of God. Do you remember that sermon a couple of weeks ago? So how do we know what the will of God is? Well, we live, do you see the cycle that's perpetuating right here in Romans chapter 12? We can know the will of God by practicing this and being the family God desires us to be. For by the grace given to me, by God's mercies, Romans 1 through 8, because of what Jesus did, I tell everyone among y'all not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. So if we're going to actually do this community thing correctly, like the Bible calls us to, what's the starting point? How do we take a step in the way God envisions? Well, it begins with humility. That humility is the prerequisite for community in the way of Jesus. You cannot both be prideful and experience the way of Jesus. It begins in humility. Now, verse 4, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. So there's your individualism, but notice it's never for the sake of you. You are allowed to have an individual identity. That's something that God granted you and instilled into you. It's a good thing, but it's always for the purpose of someone else. Because the way the church functions is that we would join it all together in one functioning body. Each member belongs to the other. We each have a part to play. We don't belong to ourselves. I mean, it's a little morbid, so pardon me, but chop a foot off and see how long that foot lasts. It's made to be a part. We can't separate off and think that it will work. No, according to the grace given us, we have different gifts. Verse 6, if prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. And if service, in service. If teaching, then in teaching. If exhorting, then exhortation. If giving, then with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. So he gives this list, prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, mercy. And I don't think that's exhaustive because he gives other lists elsewhere. But he's saying, find the thing that you love to do and then pour yourself into it for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the church. And then Paul goes into 25 short staccato commands, just one after another of how we're supposed to do life together. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Or your version might say, love must be sincere. See, this thing we do on Sunday mornings, it's not a show. At least it's not supposed to be a show. I'm not here for your entertainment, and you're not here to feed my ego. It's not about that. 
Sunday morning is supposed to be this prevalent chance that we can show love sincerely to one another, that the world might see it, that this would be the starting place of rooting, flourishing, growing relationships. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. There is no escaping Jesus' moral vision of right and wrong. No, we take what Jesus says and we stand on it. Regardless of what the world says, we cling to it. And he goes on to say, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. We're back to that family outline. Your version may say, be devoted to one another. And I like that translation pretty well because I think sometimes we, and again, our hyper-individualistic culture, have decided that devotion is the thing you do when it's just you and God in the morning. That is a part of it. You are to be devoted to God. But to be devoted to God but not to one another is a hindrance to what God has called us to. We're to be devoted, devoted first to God, but then also devoted to one another in love. Love one another deeply. Outdo one another showing honor. I mean, celebrate other people in this room. Call out the great things in them. Look at them and say, man, when you did this, it blessed me this way. It's honoring, it's celebrating, it's lifting up the people in this room next to us. Verse 11, do not lack in diligence, or do not lack diligence in zeal, but be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. I mean, stir up love. Your passion for Jesus is in direct proportion to your neighbor's passion for Jesus. And the more you can bring up passion, the more they bring up passion, and it begins to cycle itself through as we love and serve one another. And he goes on to say, rejoice, verse 15, or verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Man, suffer together with this buoyancy of spirit that keeps us above the ways. Be joyful together. Be patient together. Pray together. Suffer together. Practice hospitality. Do not repay evil for evil, but give careful thought to what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, don't avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it's written, Vengeance belongs to me. I'll repay it, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Do you see Paul's vision for the church? I mean, what a compelling vision. And if you were to take that and just put it on the wall and then grade First Baptist on that rubric, what grade would you give it? Because this is what God's holding us to. But, but don't miss this. Paul is laying out these commands because the natural tendency of the church is away from these things, not towards them. So in the context of the Roman church, Nero had really, Emperor Nero was the, the emperor of the time, he really despised Jewish people, so he actually banished them out of Rome for five years. 
So you had a little Christian church that only consisted of Gentiles for five years, and then all the Jewish people came flooding back in once that decree was abolished. So Paul writes this letter seemingly along with this to try to anticipate the problems that were going to arrive. When Paul's writing this, he's anticipating a reality where the tendency of the church is actually a place where there's tension. And in the church, there's interpersonal conflict, and there's this desire to just go lock yourself in your house and be alone because the internet has far more affirmation than what you can get at church. That you want to get back at people that hurt you to get even. To let your pride and hubris settle in so that you don't have to share with those people. They don't deserve it anyways. Or you don't have to listen to those people. You're way smarter than they are. Paul assumes that every ounce of that is actually within our own hearts. And he calls us up and out of it to become a community of tight-knit, loving relationships. Especially in the midst of a world where it is near impossible to find that elsewhere. So how do we do this? How do we foster tight-knit, loving relationships? Three things. I'm going to go through them really quickly. Three things from three prevalent minds kind of in these areas. First and foremost is sincere communication. There's a guy, he's a professor of communications at Biola University. His name is Dr. Tin uh, Mulehoff. Great things to say if you're ever interested in studying Christian communication and what should make us communicate well. But he suggests that there's five levels of clear communication. Level one is cliche, so that's just the how are you doing, or how's it going is the question. Uh, So it's just, you know, this is the 30-second conversation you have with someone in here next to you, just because that's all the time you have. Number two is the facts. What did you do today? What did you do yesterday? How was your week? What did you do? That type of thing. Three is opinions. Who's going to win the national championship tomorrow night? What do you think of this political person? Whatever. It's opening opinions. Number four is feelings. How are you with, with an actual encounter allowed for afterwards where they can open up and be honest with you and you can be honest back with them. And then five is transparency. Who are you? And he says the problem that we have now is we really don't get much beyond the stage of cliche if we even get to that anymore. Because there's a generation of people that talking to anyone else at all is terrifying. Like I don't even want to talk to the person that's scanning my groceries at Walmart, so I'll just go to self-checkout. That's fine. You can do that if you want. But if we're going to be a culture that can have sincere communication, it has to start here. We need to give space. We need to make a point and be intentional about having these communication points. And I'm not saying you have to bare your soul to every single person who asks in this room. But maybe the cliche point is the point to start right now. To finally start learning names and having these sincere points of communication. But all of that demands sincere communication, and sincere communication demands fostering proximity. Uh, American anthropologist from the 1930s, he was born in the 1930s, his name's Edward Hall, he did a bunch of work over what he called proxemics. So he came up with this little chart right here, and he said that generally speaking, uh, humans can, can, you can calculate your amount of relationships through proximity. So we all usually have about 70 relations. This was pre-COVID. I think these numbers have dropped noticeably since COVID. But the public space, you know, a group of 70 people that are visible to us, right? I know their name. They know my name. I can sit next to them. These are the people that you can sit in the same pew with. You're just going to be like an arm's length away from them. That's your visibility people, your public square space people. But there should be a point that we move beyond that with about 20 to 50. That's the social space. These are the people that are available to you. 
that you know when you're in a point of need, you can call them and they'll answer, that if you're broke down on the side of the road, they'll come pick you up, that if you need this, they'll give it to you. These are your 20 to 50 people that you can just lock in and trust. These are the people that you can sit next to in the pew. You just might have your purse next in between you, and that's all right. And then there's the personal space. These are the people that actually know your faults, and they know your strengths. It's only about five to 12 people. They know what you struggle with and what you really do well with. These are the people that you can touch knees in the pew, and it's not that awkward, right? And then there's your intimate space, and this is just your family, the, the people that you live with on an intimate basis. And the question that we ask with all of this is, how do we provide proximity for these things to happen right here? Because if we're going to be the community God called us to, then this needs to be the primary space that we experience all of these types of relationships, that it all is housed here in the church we call First Baptist, so that... We can sincerely communicate, we can live in proximity, and that we can love the church. One last quote, and we'll close out. Henry Nouwen was a Dutch priest uh, that, that has passed away a couple years ago. But he would write a lot, uh, and people would send him questions, and he would write back. And one of the questions, and it was much longer than this, but essentially it was, can't people just follow Jesus without the church? Doesn't the church put too much baggage on Christianity? Can't we just do without it? And here's his answer to that. The church, as you say so clearly, can be the way of God, can be in the way of God, but it will never cease to also be the way to God. This is the herd paradox of the Christian life. When we give up the church completely, we end up losing God. In many ways, we are in the same situation that Jesus was during his lifetime. He strongly criticized the religious leaders of his time, but continued to say that people should listen to their words without following their example. And while Jesus was very critical of the religious institutions of his time, he never suggested that people could do without them. And it is just as true today. Now, Nouwen was a Catholic and almost assuredly has some Catholic assumptions underneath that idea. But I think the premise remains. that This thing we call the church, First Baptist, I'll be honest, it can be messed up sometimes. And the more you get inside, the more you'll find that it's messy and hard. Tempers flare up from times to times. Feelings can get hurt. Bureaucracy can override ministry and policy can outclass people. And all of those are things that we have to deal with. But none of it changes the reality that this is Christ's vision of demonstrating the gospel to Portalis. This is what Jesus wants. We are the body of Christ to a town that desperately, desperately needs Jesus. So the question we have to ask is, is that what we're trying to be? Because like we said at the beginning, there is a world out there that is quite literally dying faster than it ever has in the last 20 years. And we gather Sunday after Sunday to celebrate a Savior that has quite literally conquered death. Surely we can put those two things together. First Baptist Church must become a community of tight-knit, loving relationships. How are you participating in that? This is your chance just to pray about it, to ask God how you can partake and be a part of the community that God would call our church to be. Father God, we come to you and we thank you that you would call us to be this community. That you would set up what you have done for us in the gospel that we might display 
the conquering of death to others. And God, I pray that as we celebrate what it means to be a close-knit, loving relationship community, that you would foster in your spirit the unity and growth we need for it. And God, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know what it means to be a part of a community like that because they don't know what it means to, to be saved and forgiven by you, that they would come to know that this very morning. God, let us be the church you've called us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.